We have a phrase in English, to drop a bombshell. I'm sure you've all heard that phrase before. It's what Meghan and Harry did to the Queen this week. To drop a bombshell is to make an announcement that is totally unexpected. More than that, the phrase comes from the First World War and pictures the utter devastation caused by bombing on battlefields. So to drop a bombshell is to make an announcement that shatters all previous understanding and conception. It is by nature destructive. When someone has dropped a bombshell, our worldview, our outlook, our opinions of something or someone will never be the same. I wonder what your instinctive reaction is when this happens to you. At the drop-in this week, some of us were talking about where we were when great moments of history took place. We can remember exactly what we were doing when we heard of the assassination of JFK or the release of Mandela or the attack on 9-11 or the Japanese tsunami. These were bombshell moments. I remember particularly the day of 9-11. I was standing at the school bus stop with my friends and began to hear reports of planes flying into skyscrapers. And my instinctive reaction was to doubt, to question, to refuse to believe such devastating news. I remember saying to someone, you're making this up. You're trying to make me look gullible. That's not true. And of course it was true. And on that day, my whole worldview changed. It was like I became an adult overnight. My 16 years before that had been lived in the protective cocoon of family and friends and playing football. And suddenly I was learning words like terrorist and realizing that the Western way of life was not envied by all. The world changed that day. My understanding of the world changed that day. It was a bombshell moment. It destroyed my naivety. No wonder it took a long time for me to believe and then to comprehend. Doubt, questions, a refusal to believe, accusations of lying. These are all common reactions at times like these. I'm sure you also recognise this from your experience. Last week we learned that Paul had also dropped a bombshell. He was preaching a message so unexpected, so revolutionary, it was destroying previously held beliefs. Paul was preaching grace and peace to all. He was proclaiming that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, the doors had been blown off the Jewish race and now all were welcome. God was in the process of making one universal family. One family made up of every tribe and tongue and nation. One family of rich and poor, slave and free, male and female. All were now welcome through faith to become children of God. And what is more, because God's welcome was now cast far and wide, the age of the law 
was now past. You no longer needed to become a Jew and follow Jewish law to be acceptable to God. No one could obtain salvation by observing the law. The law, which was once a helpful guide on how to live, had now been eclipsed by the life of Jesus and the ministry of the Holy Spirit through believers. God's people were now free from the law. Circumcision, kosher food, sacred days, Jewish festivals, none of them were now required. Faith in Christ was what was key. Now, we are Gentile Christians living 2,000 years after that announcement. It's so easy for us to miss just how revolutionary, how shocking Paul's teaching was. To the Jews and the Jewish Christians of the time, it was utterly unexpected and utterly devastating to their previously held beliefs. Faith without law? Spirit without Moses? Family without Jewish rites and customs? This was against everything they knew and how dear. To welcome the Gentiles on equal terms tore their worldview apart. So being no doubt, Paul has dropped a bombshell. And in every town and village he travels to, to announce his message, the blast is felt again and again. So it's no surprise at all then when we see the reaction of the Jews and the Jewish Christians. They doubt. They question. They categorically refuse to believe until further evidence can be provided. They outright accuse Paul of lying and making his message up. In our passage, we find three accusations that they level at Paul. And to all three, Paul must give an answer. He must convince the newly uh, believing Galatians of the truth. Otherwise, they'll start to leave him wholesale and follow his accusers instead. The first accusation that Paul has leveled at him is that he has tailored his message just to please people. The Judaizers are angry that Paul is announcing that circumcision is no longer required. They believe that he is doing this just to make life easy for the Gentiles. Paul wants Gentiles to be part of the family of God, so he's taken out, shall we say, some of the more painful requirements just to suit them. In other words, in their view, Paul's failure to have the Gentiles circumcised was just a trick trying to please them. It was the gospel on the cheap. They're accusing Paul of being shallow, of just wanting to be liked, just wanting to be popular. They accuse Paul of just saying the things that he knows people want to hear. It's a bit like today when politicians promise the earth great investments into healthcare, schools, transport. Oh, and there'll also be big tax cuts as well. There's no integrity there. They're just saying what they know people want to hear to get people to follow them. It's a cheap trick. And in verse 10, Paul utterly rebuffs this allegation. This was just not how he worked. Paul didn't care whether people liked him or not. All he cared about was serving Jesus and being faithful to the message that Jesus had given him. 
And if you reread verses six to nine of chapter one, you will see that Paul doesn't bend over backwards just to be liked. In those verses, his words are caustic. In his anger, he's announced a curse, not a blessing. He has asked eternal condemnation to fall on the heads of those who preach lies and distort the gospel. These are not the words of a woolly liberal who just wants to please everybody that he meets. So this is accusation one dealt with. Paul has not tailored his message just to please people. For some, his message is very uncomfortable indeed. All Paul cares about is serving Jesus. He couldn't care less what mere humans thought of him. The second accusation that Paul faces is that he's made this whole gospel up. This message of there being one family and freedom from the law, it's all the figment of his imagination. Okay, say the Judaizers. Paul, you might not just be trying to please people, but you're unhinged. You're on a power trip. You're saying the first things that come into your head to garner your own following. That's why your announcement is so contrary to everything we Jews have believed before. Well, Paul is again utterly blunt in rebuffing this allegation. In verse 11, he says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. And Paul then goes on to state where it did come from. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. That is a big statement. That Paul received his gospel message direct from Jesus. He is going to have to explain that. And from verse 13 to 17, that is exactly what he does. Paul's greatest defence against the accusation of him making his gospel up is his own personal testimony. Think about it. Paul is being accused of flouting the Jewish law. He's being accused of watering down Jewish customs and traditions. He's being accused of lying to the Gentiles so their entry to God's people seems easier than it is. But if you know anything about Paul, that at one stage in his life was the very last thing he would have thought of doing. Before his conversion, Paul had been called Saul. And as Saul, he was an out-and-out -out zealot for the Jewish law. Saul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He strictly adhered to Jewish rules and customs and traditions. He was so zealous, he'd advanced past all his fellow Jewish students and was now overseeing the enforcement of the Jewish laws over a wide population. Saul believed that the Jewish law applied to every minute detail of daily living, from the washing of hands to the cooking of meals to what you could and couldn't do on certain days of the week. In fact, we learn in the book of Acts that Saul was so zealous, he even persecuted and killed Christians because he thought they were compromising the Jewish law in order to worship a bogus Messiah. When you think of Paul's life prior to his conversion, there was no one on the planet 
less likely to be guilty of disrespecting the Jewish law and offering cheap grace to the Gentiles than Paul was. Once upon a time, Paul had been just like his current accusers. But that was up until the day Saul met Jesus. He met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And you can read the full story of it in Acts chapter 9. As the light shone, God revealed his son to Saul. Saul heard the risen Lord Jesus speak. An act so powerful, it left Saul blind for a time. That was Saul's bombshell moment. Meeting the risen Jesus blew apart all of his preconceptions. It changed his worldview so much he became a new person. Saul became Paul. And how do we know that this experience was genuine? Well, just look at Paul's life since the Damascus Road. Now he was travelling throughout the whole Mediterranean region, preaching that God loved the Gentiles just as much as the Jews. That Jesus was Lord and Messiah. He wasn't bogus. He was risen and reigning. In verse 15, Paul describes these events in these words. God, who had set me apart from my mother's womb, called me by his grace. He was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. The zealot Saul had been stopped in his tracks. His life had been completely turned around by meeting Jesus. And now Paul had committed the rest of his life to Jesus, who had given him personally the message that he was to preach. No, Paul had not made this gospel up. It's the very last thing in the world he would have made up. The fact that he was preaching peace and grace to the Gentiles at all showed that his message came solely from Christ. The final accusation that Paul has levelled at him is that somehow his message has been formed under the influence of others. That Paul was not as independent as he claimed to be, but rather he's been brainwashed by false teachers, dodgy traditions, heretical churches. Hence why his gospel is so out of line. And Paul emphatically rebukes this again in verse 12. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. And then from verse 17 onwards, he explains a little more. After meeting Jesus on Damascus Road, Paul didn't stop to consult any other person. He didn't go to Jerusalem to debate or be taught. Rather, he went into the wilderness of Arabia for three years. Now, we don't know what Paul did in Arabia for that length of time. Some people have hypothesized that he needed teaching just as the disciples had been taught for three years when Jesus was on earth. Others have speculated that meeting the risen Jesus was such a bombshell, Paul needed three years to pick up the pieces of his religion and work out exactly what he did believe now. But either way, in those three years, he was on his own, independent of possible false teachers. 
Then when he did come back from Arabia, Paul says that he still wasn't influenced by others. Yes, he did go to Jerusalem, but only briefly. He was there 15 days. He saw Peter and a little bit of James, but nowhere near for long enough to have his views changed. Neither was he impacted upon by the supposedly dodgy teaching of churches in Judea. In verse 21, Paul says he was personally unknown by those churches. The only thing he adds is that when they did get to hear about him, they were delighted that he'd gone from persecuting Christians to preaching the gospel. No, 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 Paul says, I was not influenced by religious traditions or dodgy churches or false teachers. I was completely independent of them. My message came from Christ. Meeting Jesus face to face on the Damascus Road, that's where it came from nowhere else so consequently these are not my words that i speak they are god's words and all people need to listen to them god really is building one family of jew and gentile together through the death and resurrection of jesus god really has set people free from the law i know this is a bombshell i know this is hard to take in but it's true Test it and you will see. Look at my life. Look at the fruit to my ministry. Look at the scriptures and all the prophecies that Christ fulfilled and grow to accept the unexpected. I hope we now understand the passage and why it's placed in the letter where it is. But there is one thing more that we must do before we finish and that is apply it to our lives today. How should we here on Isla respond to these words in 2020? Well, I think we need to realise that sharing the gospel is still like dropping a bombshell in today's world. We are telling people that there is a God who created everything. No, the world didn't just evolve by accident. We are telling people that God made human beings to enjoy loving relationship but we messed it up with our sin. No one today likes to think of themselves as a sinner. We are telling people that God came to earth in Jesus and died on a cross. People today struggle to believe in God, let alone a God who could die. We are telling people today that on the third day he rose again. That to many is just a fairy tale. We are telling people that if they follow Jesus, eternal life awaits. But if they reject him, eternal death. That's just downright confrontational. <coughs> Be in no doubt, speaking the gospel today is still like dropping a bombshell. And people today still have the same instinctive reactions. They doubt. They question. They refuse to believe. And increasingly in our world, many now accuse Christians of lying. How do we respond to that? Well, we can't go and say to them, well, I got my faith from such and such a church. I understand about Jesus from such and such a teacher. Because people today have no regard for the church and they don't read Christian books and they think that church power figures brainwash people. Now, if we want to convincingly share our faith today, we've got to do what Paul did. We've got to show the independence of our experience of Jesus. So in that regard, our personal testimony 
is what gives our authority. No one can argue with our personal experience. They cannot argue when they witness turned around lives. When people who they've seen and known and loved for a long time dramatically change before their very eyes. They get first-hand evidence of God being at work. Our job today is not to try and please people. We're not going out there to present an easy gospel with uh, no requirements to it. Our job is to point to Jesus. And we can all do that, even those of us who don't like speaking, by simply sharing our testimony, telling our story like Paul did. And I encourage us to use the same simple steps that Paul did. Tell people what our life was like before Jesus. What were our goals, our ambitions? What did we struggle with? Why was it so unfulfilled? Tell them how our conversion happened. What took place? How did we meet Jesus? What happened in that moment or over that period of time? And then tell them how your life has changed since. The impact of what Jesus has meant to your life. Tell your story. Because it's God's story. Keep it short. Keep it simple. Don't use Christian jargon. But allow the power of God's work in your life to be a great witness to other people. And the authority we need to keep speaking the gospel. May God use us to drop gospel-shaped bombshells and turn lives to him. Starting this week when we tell someone our testimony. Let's pray together.